APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Gentili, and I'm excited to welcome back Professor Ivy Kempf. Hi, Ivy. How are you doing today? I'm great, Cindy. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm really looking forward to talking about this new or somewhat new law, the Speak Out Act, and its impact on employment and labor law. Me too. It's a pun that you'll get later. (laughs) So we've done a couple podcast episodes on hot topics in the employment law space. This is just another topic that I'm excited to be able to tackle with you because the Speak Out Act is one more recent law that is changing the landscape of work in the United States. President Biden signed the Speak Out Act in December of 2022. And I just want to give a little background on the law. It's an outgrowth of the hashtag MeToo movement that gained traction on Twitter in early 2016. The The movement's founder, Tarana Burke, is a survivor of sexual assault. She coined the phrase Me Too in 2006. But it took another 10 years for it to really pick up speed in the public sphere. And the Speak Out Act is important in the context of Me Too because it really serves to empower victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault in their efforts to hold their employers liable for behavior that is, in fact, illegal. So what the Speak Out Act does is it invalidates any non-disclosure agreement or non-disparagement agreement that are often included in employment contracts. And Ivy, did you know that even before the Speak Out Act, Congress had passed in a bipartisan manner some legislation that limited arbitration in cases involving sexual assault and sexual harassment? I did not know that. We have a law that was passed just a few months, really, before the Speak Out Act, and that is the kind of a long title, Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, which was signed in March of 2022. And this amends the Federal Arbitration Act uh, and allows employees that are subject to any type of pre-dispute mandatory arbitration agreements to actually go to court and make their case on any claim related to sexual assault or sexual harassment. So that way, those employees or those people who have suffered sexual assault or sexual harassment have a choice as to how to pursue their cases. So they're not just forced into arbitration now? They're not. So they um, previously, if there was an arbitration agreement signed between an employer and an employee, that stands. But because of this Ending Forced Arbitration Act, If the case involves sexual harassment or sexual assault, then the employee or the victim has the opportunity to take that case directly to the court. That's fantastic. So what this does is it preserves the litigants' access to the court rather than forcing them into arbitration. And it also makes it illegal to compel a party to remain silent to sexual harassment or assault because many arbitration agreements contain something that protects confidentiality. Before the Speak Out Act, corporations could limit bad press by silencing current and former employees. And that silence was guaranteed through the use of non-disclosure agreements or non-disparagement agreements. What's the difference between those two? What are they? You want to help our listeners understand? That's a great question. 
So I want to just give a quick kind of overview of, of each because really they're neutral in their intent. It's just how they have been used that makes them a little less neutral. So non-disclosure agreements or NDAs, as they are sometimes called, are legally enforceable agreements between any two parties or more than two parties that are used to ensure that certain information will remain confidential. It's not strictly limited to employment context, but it is used quite a bit in an employment context. Non-disparagement agreements are usually just a clause or some language that is added to an employment agreement or maybe part of a severance package, which requires that employees or former employees don't disparage their employer after severing a working relationship. Uh, you can also see them in lease agreements sometimes. Basically, what that means is you can't talk bad about them, right? <laughs> That's what disparagement means. That's right. And with social media and all the different opportunities to talk, quote unquote, publicly, you can understand that it is in the interest of the corporation in our context to want to limit that speech. However, what it's done is really limited the ability for employees and victims to have their cases heard and to receive restitution, whether it's in the civil context or beyond. So the Speak Out Act, which was codified at the end of 2022, makes these pre-dispute agreements unenforceable if they involve cases of sexual harassment or sexual assault. So Ivy, do you want to tell us a little more about the act itself? Sure. I'm happy to do that. So as you kind of described already, these NDAs have been in the hiring process, have been used during the hiring process for, for many, many years. They're also used in those severance agreements and even in those legal settlements when people settle lawsuits, they can put NDAs in those agreements as well so that the employee can speak about the circumstances surrounding the sexual assault or disparaging the employer sometimes, even in those uh, legal settlement agreements. So the Me Too movement, like we noted, was really kind of the fuel to the law, to this federal legislation. And it really kind of highlighted how these NDAs are being used to hide repeated sexual harassment in the workplace, and particularly by those executives, right, those people in power that were using them and preventing those victims from speaking publicly about what was happening to them. So like Cindy had noted, President Biden in 2022 signed the Speak Out Act into law. And what it does is it effectively prohibits or stops the use of these non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements in the cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault. So it does limit it to those two types of behaviors. and. It only applies to non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements that were signed before a dispute arises, not afterwards. So as you can see, Cindy, you have to kind of do a timeline of when did the actual misconduct happen, because that's going to make a difference. If you signed the agreement and then the misconduct happens and you then allege misconduct happening then the employee is free to speak out about that misconduct, even though they signed the NDA because the conduct happened afterwards. But if the conduct happened before they signed an NDA and then the employee was to sign an NDA, then they're going to be bound by that NDA. They can't speak publicly about the misconduct. Why do you think the act 
contemplates a difference in terms of why it's enforceable before but not following? I don't know for sure, but I would I would think that they're trying to stop any type of argument that there was entrapment of the employer. I don't know. What do you think? So I wondered about this, too, when I looked at the timeline contemplated by the legislation. And one of the thoughts I had is that the Speak Out Act is really trying to empower victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And if after a dispute has already been, the event has already occurred or the events have already transpired and the individuals are aware that a dispute has occurred, if the victim chooses to agree to a non-disclosure or non-disparagement language in a settlement agreement, Congress doesn't want to stop that type of negotiation from being within the rights of the victim. It could be part of a settlement that allows the victim to get different types of remuneration that they are seeking while still agreeing to keep it out of the public eye. And that can benefit the employers, too. But it does serve to level the playing field between the two parties. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Uh, And I think in the context of settlement, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. If, If you have misconduct and you agree as part of the settlement agreement to basically quiet yourself as part of the settlement agreement, you can't thereafter claim that the end date is implied to you. It's a term of the settlement agreement. Where it gets a little confusing is that if it's not part of a settlement agreement, if it's just part of the employment contract, why does the fact that it happened before you signed the NDA make a difference Is if the NDA is part of an employment contract? The only other thought I had to that was that it, it just kind of encourages employees to come forward and report the misconduct sooner. So maybe that's why the timeline. And here's where I think the advent of the Me Too movement really comes into play, because the public just became so much more aware about the sort of insidious, rampant sexual harassment and sexual abuse that was occurring in certain spheres that If not for Me Too, I'm not sure that this act would exist. What do you think, Ivy? I absolutely agree. I mean, I really think that was the fuel behind this act. I think it was in response to Me Too movement. I I don't think there's a question about that. And it's really interesting when you look at the actual text of the act itself. And I'm not going to read the act. It's, It's kind of long. The act itself has a section that talks about findings. And these are the things that a bipartisan group of the House and the Senate uh, agreed to. So some of the language, some of this is a direct quote right from the, the act itself, okay? So Congress finds the following. Sexual harassment and assault remain pervasive in the workplace and throughout civic society, affecting millions of Americans. Right there, point one, I don't think we would have this codified into a federal statute without Me Too. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that the fact that so many people came forward with their stories, it really did spur this. And there needed to be some protection to try to stop perpetrators from continuing to harm people. And it started to become known that there was pervasive sexual harassment and sexual assault going on, especially from the higher-ups people with power in the workplace. So I think that this is directly speaks to that. Uh, yes, I agree. And so the second section in the findings actually gives some statistics. Again, super interesting to me that this is codified into the act itself. 
81% of women and 43% of men have experienced some form of sexual harassment or assault throughout their lifetime. And then section three, one in three women have faced sexual harassment in the workplace during her career. And an estimated 87 to 94% of those who experienced sexual harassment never filed a formal complaint. So I don't think that that comes as a shock to those of us sort of working in this space, but it is amazing to me to see that this is actually in the text of the act. It's never a surprise. I guess when you see the numbers, it is just alarming, even though you know how pervasive it is. Very true. Again, I don't want to just read all of the text, but there's some other sections that continue to make pretty bold statements codifying into the United States Code about sexual harassment in the workplace. And the results of that, like women leaving their jobs, leaving their occupations or industry in total, and passing up opportunities for advancement because of that sexual harassment and assault. We all know people who have had to make those very difficult choices. So then the act of this finding section goes on to talk a little bit about those non-disclosure and non-disparagement provisions. And I think we've covered why those are pretty silencing or have a, a chilling effect on the victims of such conduct. And here's the statement that Congress makes as far as why I would say this is the sum and total of why this act is important. Prohibiting non-disclosure and non-disparagement clauses will empower survivors to come forward, hold perpetrators accountable for abuse, improve transparency around illegal conduct, enable the pursuit of justice, and make workplaces safer and more productive for everyone. So I really wanted to add those points specifically because these are real data points that are now accepted within, again, this act as being uh, a reason why the act had to come into existence. But it's really worth talking about the fact that this is congressional findings. Is there anything, Cindy, in addition, I mean, I think that this is very powerful legislation and I, I like that it has a strong result. But how about training? Is there anything about training for employees and employers uh, in order to comply with this legislation? Is that part of the act or? Yes. When we look at the section that I just read that speaks about why this act specifically contemplates prohibiting non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements. So some of the results that Congress hopes to see because these agreements are banned or, or, or no longer allowed to be included in uh, agreements or contracts have to do with transparency around illegal conduct, have to do with making workplaces safer, making workplaces more productive. And the way that corporations really can do that is through creating a culture within their workplace where the workforce is in an anti-harassment posture. And that is done first and foremost through having corporate values and a corporate mission that align with that goal. But the goal isn't the end result, right? The goal is is just sort of the goal. We need to have steps we take to get to that, to make that goal a reality. And I think that's where training comes in. And it's not just about legally complying with the act. In fact, I think that's pretty simple. If all we were doing was looking at how do you legally comply with this act, you just remove the language of NDAs from employment contracts or settlements. But I think they keep them in because they do catch other things. Sure, you're definitely correct. And I should have been more precise that the NDAs are only relevant here in the context of sexual assault and sexual harassment. 
So employers are not going to just bar or remove those from a contract. But even if the contract language included something like, you know, non-disclosure agreement, um, except in cases of sexual assault or sexual harassment, that may be aligned with the actual letter of the law, but it doesn't really address kind of the spirit of the Speak Out Act. And that's why I wanted to mention all the findings that Congress leaned on in its first section of the act. We know that corporations need to go further than just kind of fixing the language. They need to create this culture of continuously training and developing a workforce that nurtures anti-harassment values in the workplace. And speaking of continuing to nurture and change, which is what corporations need to do, There's more, Cindy, in addition to the federal legislation, there's also state laws that have been passed, which provide additional protection on top of this federal law to employees mostly. But that's something that employers have to pay attention to because they not only have to comply with this federal legislation, but there's state and even local legislation that's been enacted to try to increase protection for victims of the sexual misconduct in the workplace. Let's take a break here, Ivy. Thank you for helping me work through this complicated topic. And I'm Cynthia Gentili. We'll be right back. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. And we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Professor Ivy Kempf about the Speak Out Act and the ways in which it impacts employment law. Let's get right back to it. There's so much employers need to be aware of when it comes to legislation around this, because like you said, it's not just federal. It's also going to be in the states in which you're doing business. Absolutely. I took a look at some of the state legislation out there just to kind of see what was going on. And certainly I can't cover the entire United States, but I did pull up a few states and I took a look at some of the laws out there. One that I found kind of interesting. So in New Jersey, we'll start there since they were among the first states to enact this type of legislation. And they all kind of start around 2019 to 2022. Again, Right on the heels of the Me Too movement, this legislation started popping up. So New Jersey actually amended there. They have this New Jersey law against discrimination that was already in existence, and they amended that to try to put in there that employment contracts or settlement agreements that have, quote, the purpose or effect of concealing the details relating to a claim of discrimination, retaliation, or harassment, end quote, are against public policy and unenforceable against a current or former employee. So it kind of speaks, again, to you're talking the spirit of the law, it kind of puts that right in the legislation, anything that has the purpose or effect of concealing the details. So I hear you highlighting the word effect. Do you think that that, by using the language purpose or effect takes this even further than the Speak Out Act, right? I absolutely believe that. It's actually an interesting case that that kind of highlight that which brought about this legislation. It's called Savage versus Township of Neptune. I'm sure we'll put a link on the page to to the case. This is a New Jersey case. An appellate panel took a look. This employee was a 
female police officer. And she had unfortunately experienced sexual discrimination, harassment, and unlawful retaliation is what she claimed in violation of this law, this New Jersey law against discrimination. And in that case, they actually reached a settlement agreement. So here we have a settlement agreement that happens after the misconduct that we just talked about earlier. And in that agreement that contained a non-disparagement clause, and later that female police officer went on to a television interview, and she noted during that interview that the Neptune Police Department had not changed and that it was still a, quote, good old boys system. Hence, the, the Neptune Police Department filed a lawsuit to saying that she had violated the NDA that was in their settlement agreement. So the court had to basically decide, is this a violation, first of all? And then also they had to decide whether or not these types of non-disparagement clauses were against public policy. They ended up deciding both in the negative. But what was interesting in this case, I thought, is that the text of the settlement agreement actually said, and I'll read it because I think this is important, quote, it prohibited statements that were, quote, regarding the past behavior of parties, which statements could tend to disparage or impugn the reputation of any party, end quote. So the court said, well, her statement kind of, um, it didn't say that, you know, talk about past behavior. It talked about the fact that it was still a, quote, good old boy system. And that's present and future behavior, not past behavior. So I thought that was really interesting. And the court ultimately held that it, it was not a disparaging statement. It didn't violate the NDA. And they also said that NDAs were not against public policy. And then you might say, well, then how can this law be in existence? Well, that's because the legislature went back after this case happened and they went, uh, no, yes, it is. <laughs> and they drafted legislation. So the Senate, uh, it's a Senate Bill 2930, if anybody wants to take a look at it. They introduced that into the Senate uh, to try to amend this New Jersey LAD once again, to try to add in there that non-disparagement provisions uh, are unenforceable because they are against public policy and certain agreements. So that bill is still pending. We'll have to stay tuned. But that's one in very interesting case, I thought. Let me see. Um, we also saw some expansion of the act in California. Do you know anything about this? I do know it's the Silence No More Act, I think is what it's called. And I think it expands beyond sexual harassment and sexual assault. Am I right in that? You're absolutely right. So here we talked about earlier, remember NDAs were only in, in the federal law, it only applies to sexual assault and discrimination. Here, California said, no, we're going to take it further. And they decided to expand it to settlement agreements regarding discrimination or harassment on the basis of age, ethnicity, disability, religion, pregnancy, which is interesting, and race, along with a couple other like national or origins. I think I said sexual orientation. Um, so they really went beyond that. And they're really trying to, you know, protect uh, more groups from harassment in the workplace. I wonder if that's the kind of a harbinger of what we will see moving forward on the federal level. I know a lot of times things that happen in California is a kind of a little laboratory for what will happen next at the federal level. Yeah, it stands to reason that if if California has this expanded protection for, I guess, if you think about it, really, it's all the different kind of protected classes within a civil rights context. 
I'm quite sure there'll be case law that will continue to challenge federal protections for the same. Absolutely. New Mexico, just to give another example, they went further too, and they apply their prohibited conduct of NDA, NDAs in uh, sexual assault or harassment. They stick with sexual assault or harassment, but they at least expand it to anything that happens in the workplace and at any work-related events or even coordinated by or through the employer. So that's kind of interesting. So would that be like the Christmas party or like a, a company retreat or a sales meeting, things like that? It's exactly right. And I found that to be super interesting because I would think that a lot of that sexual harassment and th that type of conduct can certainly happen at events off premises, right? If there's if there's alcohol provided and, you know, things of that nature, you can see how that can get a little out of hand. And I never really considered the fact that maybe some of them were limiting it to the workplace until I saw New Mexico's law. And what's the workplace in 2023, right? Like so many of us are working from home before we even get into the concept of the holiday party, the retreat, the sales meeting, whatever, what have you. We're thinking about what's the actual workplace. And this is a question that comes up in all kinds of HR related, employment law related questions right now. It's really interesting. I hadn't really like thought about that either. And it is interesting that the federal law does kind of talk about the workplace without, as I understand it, at least defining it. But, you know, that's what happens with federal law. We need case law to interpret it and we need case law to tell us what it means. Any other states that are worth highlighting right now on this one? Well, I mean, since I've pretty much covered the corners, let's go to the Midwest. I uh, will look at one more, friends in the Midwest and Illinois. Similar kind of language with banning agreements that have non-disclosure provisions that prohibit or prevent current, former, or prospective employees from reporting allegations of discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. So, this one was really interesting to me, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but banning agreements that prohibit an employee makes sense, <laughs> prohibit an employee from making truthful statements and disclosures and stuff. But a prospective employee I thought was very interesting. I, I tried to dig in to try to find out what that meant. Like, what is it to be a prospective employee? And it's simply defined as a person seeking to enter an employment contract with an employer. That's fascinating because it is, as as I think you're saying, that's almost broad to the point of being who wouldn't fit into that category. So I guess here again, Illinois is going to have to sort this out in case law. And so from a practical perspective, I, I could foresee a, a situation where a person was interviewing for a position and was met with some type of sexual harassing some type of harassing behavior of a sexual nature, because we always already have protections that are in place for claims that maybe they didn't get the job based on gender or things like that. But this definitely takes it to that next level, looking specifically at conduct around sexual harassment. But in a case where an employment relationship hasn't been created, it's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know how that how that shakes out. Much like a lot of other things, we have to see how the courts interpret it. Absolutely. That pretty much wraps up the at least some of the state legislation that's across uh, that's happening across this country. But like I said, there's I mean, I just barely scratched the surface. There's so much more in there. 
Thanks for that. I mean, there's quite a lot of movement on this issue. We can see how these individual state actions are kind of stretching the four corners of the conversation. I think that from my perspective, kind of my closing thoughts around this is how do we help employers and and employees know how these laws either limit or curtail certain tried and true employment practices, or in the case of employees, provide some protection and provide some leveling of the playing field, if you will. And I think that from my perspective, we have a big kind of pillar is around training, is around ensuring that our employees are trained, our company values, anti-harassment policies. But when events do occur, we need to make sure that our companies make reporting harassment claims as easy and as accessible as possible. This could be practical steps like just simply creating online landing spots in a company intranet with reporting procedures. But it also means making sure our HR departments are staffed up to a point where these types of claims are escalated and and harassment claims are treated with care, but with kind of prompt review. You know, ensuring that HR managers have the tools that they need and the training themselves is really critical. And that's not new. That's not something that changes because of the Speak Out Act. This is something that we could talk about in many different contexts. But Speak Out Act just gives employees another sort of pillar to stand on to make a case. And it puts employers in a position of potential liability in a new way. Well, it's great that we were able to kind of unpack this a little bit. I know it's not a a topic that we can exhaust in one podcast episode, there's a lot going on at state level. I, I think everybody who is um, operating in a, a state that maybe we didn't touch on, or even if we did, take a look at your own state and local laws. Even like I think you mentioned earlier, there could be local ordinances at play here. And you may have more protections than you think. Absolutely. Yep. Well, thank you again, Ivy, for joining me today. This was a, a great conversation on an important topic. And thank you to our listeners. Be well and be safe. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.